And the rest of us, our, our scripture text is uh, printed in your program. And uh, this is the last week we've been talking about the idea of Jesus as the king who was the servant or the servant king. And uh, today we're going to look at the manifesto for his kingship. You know, when we talk about Jesus as a servant king, we don't mean that he blended both of these characteristics into one, but that he was both at the same time and two the nth degree. He was such a servant that he'd kneel down and wash his disciples' feet, but he was such a king that he would turn water into wine so he could keep a party at a wedding going. He was such a king that he could calm the storm, and he was such a servant that he would lay down his life and die for his people. And so today I want to look at the servant king's kingdom. And one of the manifestos of his kingdom is Matthew chapter 5. It might be familiar to some of you. It's the Sermon on the Mount, a message that Jesus preached when he was just getting, getting going as a minister. And, and it starts off like this. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, and a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. This is God's word for God's children this morning. You know, it's a simple fact of life that you're not a leader unless you have followers. You're not really a teacher unless you have students. You're not a father unless you have children. And in the same way, you're not a king unless you have a kingdom. And when we talk about Jesus being a king, one of the things that's assumed in that is that Jesus must have a kingdom somewhere, somehow. And that's what I want to look at today. A lot of people look at Matthew chapter 5, these passages we read as the manifesto of the kingdom. The uh, description of what that kingdom is like and what it takes to be a good citizen in that kingdom. Uh, but... Overall, the, the Bible says that the significance and the glory of the church itself is that it's not just another social institution, but it is the leading edge of the kingdom of God on earth. The, 
the church is an outpost, as it were, of the kingdom of God among the kingdoms of men. That's why someone has said the local church is actually the hope of the world. Imagine that, a motley crew like us somehow being the way that the world is going to be redeemed. But that's the charge that God put on the church. And, and it's not because of us. It's not because we're talented or because we're skilled or because we have grand plans or, or some secret formula. But it's because God has designed the world such that he is going to work through the local church to accomplish his redemption. And, and so local church is the community or the kingdom that the servant king creates. And so I want to just look at what kind of a community that is real quickly. And the first thing you see is, is that it's compelling because it's a, an attractive and eye-catching community. It's a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, if you've lived in the city for a long time, or if you, you stay in the city most of the time, then one of the things you forget is how dark things can be when you get out into the woods or out into the wilderness, you know, if you go camping or something like that, where there's no street lights and there's no house lights and there's no, no signs and, and uh, things like that that are lighting things up. It can get really dark. I remember years ago I was helping with a youth camp for kids in this area and we sponsored a bunch a friend of mine had a youth ministry in the Bronx so we sponsored his youth ministry to come join us at this youth camp and he brought all these kids from the mean streets of the Bronx out to the hills of Pennsylvania for this three-day youth retreat and the funny thing was here were these kids from from pretty tough neighborhoods most of them but they got to the hills of Pennsylvania and they were terrified because it got so dark. And to walk through the woods all of a sudden felt so dangerous. I remember at the end of one of the activities one night, we were sending everybody back to their cabins. And their, the cabin that these folks were staying in was through a little path in the woods. It was just uh, pitch dark. And they all kind of lined up at the edge of the path. And they're like, we're not walking down that path. No, <laughs> we don't know what's on the other end of that. And you know, we forget, if, you know, being in the city, how dark things can get. In the ancient Near East, in Jesus' time, the cities were the place of refuge, the place of safety, the place, the place where you felt like you could be secure because the wilderness was completely lawless. There were roving bands of, uh, of bandits that were in the wilderness. There were predators of various types that might threaten travelers when they were vulnerable. And so the image here is a group of travelers traveling and, and they don't make it to the city by nightfall, but they just keep going. And then off in the distance, they see the city on the hill and they know that when they get there, they're going to find their friends and their family. They're going to find food. They're going to find shelter. They're going to find safety and they're going to be okay if they just keep on traveling towards the city. And he's and Jesus is saying that's what the church is supposed to be like, this attractive community that pilgrims in this world look to as a place where they're going to find the rest and going to find the relief and going to find the help that they need. How does the church become that? What is that light? You know, it's not that we're holding candles or we got some kind of a neon sign somewhere, but he says, he says, people will see your good deeds, verse 16. And when he says good deeds here, you know, it's important to, to, to understand that we're not talking about religiosity, you know, that we go to church and we say our prayers. 
when, when the Bible talks about good deeds, he's talking about deeds of mercy and justice. He's talking about the compassion that people in the church have, their willingness to help, their willingness to serve, their willingness to address the problems and the challenges that other people are facing and to bear one another's burdens. The model of good deeds really for all believers is the model of of Jesus. Remember the story of the life of Jesus and how he functioned and how he operated. Everywhere he went, he attracted crowds. Why? Because when he saw a blind person, he gave him sight. When he saw a man who was crippled, he helped him to walk. He, he healed him so he could walk. When he saw crowds that were hungry, he fed them. Everywhere Jesus went, he did good deeds. And this is what made him this magnetic person that everybody wanted to be around, that everybody wanted to hear from and to see. When Jesus was doing his good deeds, that was a preview of the kingdom. He was showing the people that in the kingdom there won't be any blind men because everybody will be able to see. There won't be any lepers because everyone will be healed. There won't be any hunger because the kingdom of heaven will be a feast. And so Jesus, as the king, was giving people a little preview of the dynamics of his kingdom as he went. Now, in my experience, uh, at least I'll speak for myself, I can't do miracles as reliably as Jesus did. I wish I could. You know, it would, would uh, we'd probably be in Madison Square Garden right now, but <laughs> if not Giant Stadium. But, but in another sense, I think people recognize it as a kind of miracle when we take an interest in someone who is hurting, when we decide we're going to be a conversation partner for someone who's orienting themselves to a new city, when we decide we're going to reach out and help somebody who doesn't have the ability to make their ends meet this month, or a, a, a mother who doesn't have the ability to get their kids prepared for school this school year. Whenever we do that, there's a sense in which people are seeing something supernatural, seeing something special, seeing something that that doesn't reflect the way things work in our world, and so they're being pointed beyond us to the grace and the mercy of God. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. That's why the mercy team is so important, because it gives people the opportunity to demonstrate the grace of Christ, and as we do that, other people might ask, why are they doing this? What is what is it that moves them? And Jesus says that if we're doing it right, if we're doing it from the right way, in the right spirit, then people will see our good deeds, our acts of justice and mercy, and they will be moved to glorify God. And, and that's the heart of how the kingdom comes. As the song says, it's not with swords loud clashing or the roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy that's how the heavenly kingdom comes. So the kingdom of God is attractive. The kingdom of God is a place where these deeds of ju justice and mercy are done. And, and it's also a place where we get connected. Jesus says that when he's describing the kingdom of God, he says it's like a city. It's not an individual with a torch waving his torch saying this is the way to be, but it's a collection of people. It's a lot of people who come together, who are together, and who are working together and, and 
creating a civilization together. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And so when you follow the servant king, it's not an individual event, but it's really about joining a new city. It's about becoming a resident of a new nation, the nation where he is the king. And one of the things you find is, is when you move whatever city you live in influences you in all kinds of ways you're not really aware of. And some of you, if you've moved from one city to another, if you've lived in several different cities, you know that one of the things we all have to do when we move from one city to the next is you've got to adjust to life in that city. I had a friend several years ago, he was from Kansas, I think, and then he was called to a church in Manhattan. And uh, he was called sort of in the late fall, he made the transition to, to Manhattan. And the first social event he went to was that church's Christmas party. And he was all excited about this Christmas party, so he got out his, his good khakis from, uh, from Eddie Bauer and this festive red t-shirt, or fe festive red shirt, you know, his red party shirt. And his wife, you know, she was a, a good pastor's wife, so she had a proper pastor's wife Christmas dress that she wore. And they go to this party, and he said, we were the only people in the party who weren't wearing black. <laughs> and, and he said to his wife, I guess we're not in Kansas anymore. Because, you know, wherever you are, it, it affects you. And even though we like to think of ourselves as individuals and people who stand on our own and are making our own choices, we're we're affected by the culture we're a part of, we're affected by the city that we're a part of. You know, if you live in Toronto and you move to Miami, you're going to need a whole new wardrobe, no matter what your style might be, because there's nothing you wear in Toronto that is going to work in Miami. If you live in San Francisco and then you move to Dallas, you're going to need a whole new set of politics, because the politics in San Francisco don't, don't work in Dallas. So all of these things that we think are essential to who we are, they're all influenced by our surrounding more than we know. But Jesus says, if you join the new city, the city that's set on a hill, that's going to start shaping your character. That's going to start shaping your values. That's going to start shaping the way you think and the way you talk and the way you act and your priorities and everything else. Because none of us ultimately are individuals. We join a new culture. We join a new city. And that city shapes us as we establish our citizenship there. St. Augustine put it this way, he said, there's two cities that live simultaneously and are superimposed on each other in this world. One is the city of man. In his case, it was, it was Rome and the Roman Empire and, and, and uh, everything that went along with that. But he said, superimposed on that is the city of God, the city made up of those who recognize Jesus as their king, who are following him and who are looking forward to, to heaven. And he was saying these two, cities, these two cities are in the same place in the same time, but each person has to decide where their ultimate allegiance lies. And to become a follower of the servant king is to decide and to choose that the city of God, that the kingdom of heaven is going to be my ultimate reference point and my essential community. You know, what that means is that we got to become a counterculture right here and right now. 
The problem, some people have pointed out that the problem with the church is that the church tends to become a subculture. What, what I mean by that is it becomes siloed off from the broader city and you know you have your own music, your own jokes, your own celebrities, your own way of looking at the world and, and everybody on the outside looking in says, well, that's, that's something that's just really different. But a counterculture, on the other hand, seeks to interact with the culture around you rather than isolating itself from the art and from the music and from from the, uh, the happenings of the world, seeks to, to, to have an influence and participate in the broader culture for the sake of bringing that culture to see the, the grace and the hope and the truth of the kingdom of God. And so that's, that's the call on the church to become a city on a hill, a place where people see your good deeds, see the light that you bring, and are able to make an influence on the world around us. And this happens as we create a sort of community. You know, it's one of the, the sad ironies, I think, of the, Christ, of the human existence is that you and I were all made for relationships. We're all made to deeply connect with other people and to be in, other, in relationships with other people. And yet, at the same time, most of us, the biggest problems in our life are created by our relationships. And relationships all around us are falling apart in all different kinds of ways, whether it's, it's relationships within a family or relationships between neighbors or relationships between different, uh, different people in the city or even, even just friendships that we held on to for a while and then, then they fall apart. You know, that's the paradox of, of human existence. And I think it's worse in the city sometimes because on the one hand, you can look around and you see all these people who are moving all around you who are in, in, uh, in, in your circle of influence and, and at the same time feel like you're all alone, like nobody knows you, nobody notices you, nobody would really care if, uh, if you were there or not. And so relationships are of the essence of the human life and yet they're constantly decaying, constantly falling apart. One of the things that faith in Christ does for us, one of the things that faith in Christ does in us is it brings people together. And that's what the power of the gospel does because it provides something beyond ourselves that we can all look at and work toward and have in common amongst ourselves. A shared heart, a shared identity, a shared family that transcends all of the differences we might have. And that's what creates a city that's attractive and that's gracious and that's connected and yet still welcoming to others. C.S. Lewis describes the dynamics of friendship in general this way. He says, friendship arises when two or more companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even a taste that others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought it was only me. When two such people discover one another, they share their vision, and that is when friendship is born. And he goes on to say, that is why these pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides and beyond friendship. 
I think the most profound thing that can bind us together as followers of Christ is a common commitment to him, a common intention to serve him, a common desire to become what he has called us to be. And that's the basis of Christian community. And that's one of the big things that our church is trying to establish. In the next couple weeks, you'll hear a lot about the importance of small groups. We're trying to, to develop small groups for more small groups in our, in our church. A lot of people have been profoundly impacted by the small groups they've been a part of because one of the things we've recognized is that it's one thing to show up at church and say hi to some people and catch up on the week for five minutes before everyone goes their own way. It's another thing to get together with a small group of people to study, to pray, and to get to know each other at a deeper level. And sometimes as we do that, we experience we experience a tighter bond with other people. We discover that we have more in common than we thought, and at the same time, we are brought closer to God. And so it's this community that brings people together. And, and one of the, the impacts of a church that's, that's healthy or a community where the church is operating is that it can bring people together. It can be bridging these gaps, and it can be a place where those who are isolated and alone find real and meaningful connection with one another. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And, you know, that's something that people debate. What did he mean? But one of the things he meant when he said, described Christians as salt of the earth was salt was a preservative. You know, these people were fishermen. Remember, the disciples were fishermen, and, and they would catch lots of fish, but they didn't have freezers back then or even refrigerators. So you either had to eat it all right away or you had to find a way to preserve it. And the best they could come up with was to salt the fish, to suck all the moisture out of the, out of the fish, to dry it out with salt, and then, and then it would be available when you had a couple of bad fishing days in a row. You'd have something to eat. And the idea of the Christian counterculture is that it can be a preservative because it binds people together, it keeps things from falling apart, it gives people a common basis for unity and a basis for hope. But there's another side to this. There's a warning that's implied in this because, you know, salt can, is useful for a lot of things. You like salt on your french fries or something like that. But also, you know, there's that expression to rub salt in the wound. Sometimes if you get salt in your eye, you get salt in the wrong place, it can be highly uncomfortable. And light is good because, you know, it keeps us from bumping into things when we're walking in our apartment. But the other problem is you get too much light, it can expose things that you'd rather keep hidden. I remember a friend of mine years ago who was a bachelor and he kind of let his place go a little bit, including letting letting a bunch of the light bulbs in the ceiling burnt, burn out. But finally, he couldn't see anything anymore, so he went to the store and bought a bunch of light bulbs, and one afternoon, he, he replaced all the light bulbs, and he turned the lights on, and he looked around, and he said, man, this place is really dirty. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a downside to having too much light. Sometimes it's better not to know what is uh, under the bed, you know? And, and this, is, this is a friction that, that the church will face. And, and the Bible is always very realistic. It's not going to be all sweetness and light for followers of Christ because it wasn't all sweetness and light for Jesus. I mean, as much as he was able to attract crowds with his teaching, with his miracles, through uh, feeding people, and as much as people wanted to bring their children to him, he also generated a lot of animosity. 
If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you, you remember he made as, me, as many enemies as he made friends along the way. And, uh, uh, and ultimately, you know, if you know his story, that led to things falling apart with him being arrested, with him being, being crucified, and uh, a lot of bad things happening. And, you know, here's the thing. Most people who are inclined to be part of the church, most people who, who are inclined to uh, be believers are people who want to go along, want to get along, and, you know, want to be liked. Uh, you know, the, uh, some, some of you people are fighters. I won't point you out. But most of us just want to wanna get along and want to be liked. But Jesus has this warning for his followers. He says says it's not always going to be like that. You're not always going to be well-received. And he says, sometimes you're going to be persecuted and insulted and people are going to say things against you because of me. Sometimes you're going to be cursed by men, but even when you are, he says, you can be blessed by me. So I want to talk about this concept of blessing. You know, in, this, in the Beatitudes, it's all about the blessing of God. Blessed are you when... Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You know what? What is the blessing all about? You know, it's it's one of those things that's kind of a problem in the English language. It, it's a, I mean, it's a problem to communicate because in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the Greek, there's a a big and complex Christian. Th- theological theme built around this idea of blessing. In fact, you could say that the whole work of redemption is the work of bringing the blessing back to this world. And yet, in common American usage today, blessing is just, you know, something that uh, grandma says to you, oh, bless you, child, you know. It's, it's one of those words that, that means almost nothing. But, but from the Bible's perspective, not the word blessing, but the concept of blessing, the Hebrew baruch, the the Greek makarios, it points to this gift of God, and it's actually everything that we are looking for. It's, It's the thing behind the thing of everything that you want. It's the approval, the acceptance, the affirmation, the comfort, and the security that all of us are looking for. And, uh, you know, some of us seek blessing through our careers. Some of us try to seek blessing through relationships that we find ourselves in. Some of us try to seek blessing through the things that we buy. Some of us try to seek blessing through simply accumulating money or accumulating stuff. Or we, we feel like we'll be blessed if we can finally find, get ourselves into a home that we'll feel comfortable in or get ourselves into a circumstance that we will feel comfortable in. In fact... I could put it this way, is that the thing you're seeking your blessing in is the thing that actually controls your life right now, the thing that defines your life right now. The thing that you believe is going to be the blessing for you is the thing that is going to define all of your decisions and all of your values and all of the things that you do. You know, if you, if you find your blessing in through your social life, you'll just want to be liked by a lot of people. If you find your blessing, if you're a student and you're serious about your studies, You'll define your blessing simply as getting good grades from your professor. If you're 
a young professional and you're serious about your job, you'll define your blessing as, as getting good reviews from your boss or good reviews from your customer, whoever that might be. If you're lonely and looking for love, you'll find blessing through finding a partner who finally recognizes your brilliance and your beauty and, and reflects that back to you. All of us are looking for blessing and all of us are looking for blessing behind everything that we say that we're looking for. And the Bible's point of view, though, is that the blessing we need is a blessing that trumps all of these things. In fact, that's what verse 11 says. It says, it's possible to be absolutely cursed by men and yet be blessed by God. Blessed are you when men insult you, mock you, and falsely say evil against you. In other words, you could be blessed by God when all men are cursing you. You can be blessed by God when all people are rejecting you. If you're accepted by God when you're rejected by men, that is enough. And, and that, that's the, uh, the challenge and the opportunity of the kingdom of God. It means people's blessing on you, people's approval, people's affirmation is no longer number one in your life because God's blessing is number one in your life because the blessing of God has become more important than the blessing of men. And that, that's, that's sort of the key to unlocking all of the Beatitudes, these familiar verses. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll experience a transcendent comfort. Blessed are the meek, those who don't demand their rights, because they will ultimately inherit the earth. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not that, not blessed are the righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Make the righteousness of God their highest priority. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, the community builders, the people who bring people back together. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake because they will know God's blessing in their life. So this is the picture, the profile of the citizens of the kingdom. And, and the question is, how do we get there? How do we arrive there? And, and the, the roadmap that the Bible gives us is the path to experiencing God's blessing in our life comes through the blessed one, the beautiful one, who came and lived and died for us. Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says he was rich, yet he became poor so that through his poverty we could become rich. Jesus was in heaven, was isolated from all tragedy and loss, and yet he came to this earth and he mourned so that we could be comforted. He was all-powerful, yet he meekly accepted arrest, meekly accepted humiliation, meekly accepted being nailed to the cross so that we could inherit the earth. He was the righteous one, but he became hungry and thirsty and hung on the cross and said, I thirst so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He was merciful to us so that we could receive mercy. He was the one who was truly pure in heart, the one who was made his goal to be a peacemaker, to reconcile God and men. He was ultimately cursed by men and hung 
on a cross. Why? So that you and I could be finally and ultimately blessed. He experienced the ultimate blessing or the preview of the blessing when God raised him from the dead. And that showed us that it's even in the midst of the tragedy and the hardship and the difficulty of this life, when we're following God, we experience his blessing. He makes all things new through us. And so we're invited. The invitation of the kingdom of heaven is to decide that we're going to find our blessedness. We're going to recognize that our careers won't give us our blessedness. Our relationships won't give us that blessedness. Our achievements won't give us that blessedness. It's not something we can buy with any amount of money. But if we find our blessing in God himself, then then we can join him in the renewal of all things. Then we can experience his renewal even in the brokenness of our own life. And when we're blessed in him, then what he says is going to happen is people, other people will see our good deeds and they'll glorify our Father in heaven. And the kingdom of God will be built. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessed one, our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that he didn't hold on to his blessing, but he chose to generously pour out that blessing for us. I pray that you'd help us to live in the light of that. We pray in his holy name. Amen.